You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Good afternoon. My name is Philip Lyon. I'm the Managing Director of the Center for West European Studies, the John Monet European Union Center at the University of Washington, and also the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you today to today's lecture, um, Anti-Gender Politics and Right-Wing Populism in Poland by Dr. Elzbieta Korolczuk. Um, today's lecture is simultaneously part of the Jean Monnet EU Center's Talking Gender in the EU series, and it is also the kickoff lecture for the 2021 ACES Recast Northwest Conference, which will begin in earnest tomorrow morning and run through Friday afternoon. Uh, before we begin this lecture, I want to thank, give thanks to our, our sponsors. Uh, first and foremost, the Erasmus Plus program. Um, at the European Union. We also want to thank the Center for Global Studies here at the University of Washington and the great team that we have here at the Jean Monnet EU Center and at the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. Um, especially, I would like to thank um, Jessica Meyerzone, who's been helping out behind the scenes today, and Susanna Halen. Um, unfortunately, our faculty director, Sabina Lang, is unable to join us this morning but she has designated Dr. Joyce Moosehaven to do the speaker introductory honors and handle the question and answer period. So I'll just give Joyce a quick introduction first. Um, Joyce uh, Moosehaven is a affiliate faculty member in the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University in Washington, DC. And she works on the Gender 5 Plus and EU Feminist Think Tank. She recently retired as a Curator's Distinguished Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where she also served as Director of the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies. So we are very, very glad to have uh, both Elzbieta Korolchuk and Joyce Moosehaven today with us. And with that, I will hand over to her. Joyce? Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much, Phil. I've enjoyed the hospitality of the University of Washington many times, so I feel like an honorary family member. Learning more about the gender equality challenges in the member states takes us to Poland today, where massive demonstrations in recent weeks have shown us that Polish women are not particularly willing to accept ever more restrictive anti-democratic measures in Poland, and especially in relation to the new restrictive abortion law. I'm old enough to remember the battles of the early 1990s in Poland, but as we're also seeing in the US, the battle to defend women's rights to self-determination, particularly with regard to reproduction, seems to be a war without end. Joining us today to help us understand the current Polish gender predicament is Professor Elzbieta Korolczuk, 
a recognized expert not only in gender matters, but also with regard to right-wing mobilizations against so-called gender and LGBT ideologies. She holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Warsaw, and she currently serves as an associate professor in the School of Historical and Contemporary Studies of Södertörn University in Stockholm, Sweden. She's also affiliated with the American Studies Center at Warsaw University. Professor Kowalczuk's research interest includes social movements, civil society, Engendered dimensions, especially motherhood, fatherhood, assisted reproductive technologies, and infertility policies. She's investigated parental activism in Central Eastern Europe and Russia, the social and legal implications of assisted reproduction in Poland, as well as conservative mobilizations that have targeted gender policies and feminism. She has a book that came out co-edited with Kathleen Fabian in 2015, Dangerous Liaisons, I like that, Motherhood, Fatherhood, and Politics, as well as a second text, Rebellious Parents, Parental Movements in Central Eastern Europe and Russia. Between 2015 and 2018, she worked in the project Gender and Political Cultures of Knowledge in Poland, Sweden, and Germany. And you might want to check out her 2020 article in Social Politics, Counteracting Challenges to Gender Equality in an Era of Anti-Gender Campaigns, Competing Gender Knowledges and Effective Solidarity. She's now part of a research team focusing on civil society, elite composition, reproduction, integration, and contestation in European civil societies. Her latest book, co-authored with Agnes Graf, Graf of Deutsch, is titled Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Movement, and that is the topic she will address today. Thank you so much for joining us, Elsbieta, and the floor is now yours. Thank you very much for the invitation, and thank you very much for the space. So um, actually, we managed, as you probably know, to record the uh, um, the lecture beforehand because we had quite a few technical problems before, so we want to avoid them today. Um, so I can only wish you, wish you um, um, good listening and good watching to um, to the lecture, and uh, we will reconvene for the Q and A um, session. But as a word of introduction, I just wanted to say that when I started to look at uh, anti-gender mobilizations uh, already in 2012, um, I didn't really see what is coming. I didn't really see this wave of mobilization uh, against gender or gender ideology as it is called. Uh, and I certainly did not foresee the amount or the strength of uh, right-wing populism or right-wing extremism in Europe and other places. So in that sense, um, this is uh, something, uh, some, some kind of uh, research that really uh, develops along with uh, recent developments uh, in the field of uh, politics, cultural change, and, um, and uh, societal change. And uh, in that sense, I think that uh, we will have a chance to talk a little bit about the differences between the Polish or European context and the US context, and uh, we can develop uh, ideas about where it will um, lead us to. Thank you. Hello. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to give this talk. And uh, 
I guess that's one of the few positive sides of the pandemic that we can meet even though um, we are so far apart. Today I will be talking about um, anti-gender movement and the relation between right-wing populism and gender more broadly. I will be focusing mostly on the Polish case on which I have been working uh, for the last couple of years, since 2012 at least. At the beginning, as many of my colleagues, I had this vision that it might be a typical Polish quirk, a typical Polish phenomenon which stems from the strong position of the Catholic Church and the quite conservative political elites. But as I soon learned, this is something that actually appeared in many other contexts, also in Western Europe and beyond Europe, and um, that this is something that really deserves further attention. Um, and this work has been um, uh, done together with my colleague, Professor Agnieszka Graf from Warsaw University, with whom I just finished the book, uh, Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Moment, which will be published by Rutledge hopefully soon. So today I would like to start with uh, discussing some recent developments in Poland concerning women's rights, LGBTQ issues, um, and uh, related uh, themes. Then I would like to move a little bit um, farther away from the Polish context and talk about transnational movement, um, um, which focuses on the question of gender. And then Finally, I will discuss the conceptualizations of the relationship between um, right-wing populism and gender. Let me share my screen with you, because I guess in this case, pictures might be really important to be seen. And um, some of the uh, people who are on these pictures, um, you probably know, some of them are more than um, um, well known, uh, not only in their national context, but also transnationally. Um, and when we look at those pictures, immediately we can see the theme of uh, gender appearing. Some of those pictures are from the um, rally which took place in Warsaw, Poland in 2015 which focused on uh, the, um, the um, uh, question of sex education. So that was uh, a rally against sex education in schools. Uh, La Manif Pour Tout 2011 was a strong, quite powerful and mass mobilization against marriage equality in France. And people such as um, Kaczynski, Georgia Meloni, um, Bolsonaro and Trump are well known for their um, critique of gender equality, feminism, trans rights, and issues connected to the rights of um, sexual minorities. But Poland, I would say, might be a well paradigmatic case of what happens when um, the anti-gender movement operates within the context, which is very conducive to this type of messages and where right-wing uh, populist party forms um, ruling coalition. Um, so as I mentioned, already in 2012, we started to see um, efforts to counteract what the activists saw as gender or gender ideology. And this term actually is quite broad. In con it, it concerns 
abortion, reproductive rights, contraception, sex education, the rights of uh, sexual minorities, sexual democracy more generally, uh, but also reproductive technologies, surrogacy, um, uh, divorce in some cases. So basically it's a catch-all phrase, um, which uh, according to some scholars can be termed um, um, empty signifier uh, because it is flexible. It can be filled with quite different content. But in Poland, it started with um, opposition to the ratification of the Istanbul Convention. And also the conflict evolved around new curriculum for uh, school children uh, around sex education. As you, as you can see, there has been not only protests from the clergy, the uh, church hierarchy in Poland, but also there were organizations, um, sometimes grassroots movements, which organized protests under the slogan of stop gender or danger means gender, gender means danger. And um, uh, gender and convention, uh, Istanbul Convention is actually Ebola brought from Brussels to Poland. So as you can see, the language has been already uh, at this time quite strong, and actually it got even stronger during uh, next years. Um, in 2015, uh, we had elections in Poland when the ruling Law and Party coalition came to power. And uh, during this year, um, the sort of migration crisis or refugee crisis happened in Europe. And the issue of migration has been uh, connected to the issue of gender, allegedly, um, the so-called gender or liberal elites, uh, so-called genderists, uh, LGBTQ uh, elites, uh, feminists uh, cooperating with Brussels, uh, aimed to uh, allegedly aimed to bring um, bring refugees to Poland in order to break down um, Polish Catholicism, Polish national identity, and so on. So. Uh, refugees, as in many other countries, also in Western Europe, were presented as those raping men, barbarians at our gates. But at the same time, um, this issue has been very much connected to the question of Poland's uh, dependence or independence from the European Union. Um, and uh, in 2016, immediately after law and justice started their reign, um, uh, ultra-conservative organizations um, and one of the main initiators was Ordo Iuris Institute, which is a key uh, organization, quite powerful, quite influential, I would say elite organization, uh, non-governmental organization, um, started to um, gather signatures under the petition to introduce in Poland blanket ban on abortion. Today, abortion, actually since 19, 1993, abortion has been banned, but with three exceptions, rape or incest, malformations in the fetus, or um, danger to the health and life of a woman who is pregnant. But they wanted to get rid of those exceptions and also introduce um, possible um, jail sentence for women undergoing abortion. Due to the mass mobilization of Polish women in 2016, so-called black protests uh, organized by the Polish women's strike, this um, initiative has been buried in the commissions and uh, actually it was never, it never came to fruition. But um, in 2020, 
um, through the Constitutional Tribunal, which um, is uh, has been basically illegally elected um, by the law and justice government. Um, this, at least one exception, was uh, sort of taken care of. Uh, in uh, October 2020, the Constitutional Tribunal issued a ruling that the serious malformation of the fetus should not be treated as a, um, as a reason for uh, obtaining legal abortion, which means that abortion in Poland has become, um, in fact, illegal because 90% um, of legal abortions, there is around thousands uh, of them yearly, have been um, um, conduced because of the conducted because of the uh, of the serious malformations of the fetus. So the third phase, um, which took place in um, which started around 2018, was this move from uh, from a gender, this abstract gender, and also um, refugees as those who carry danger to Poland towards LGBTQ uh, people, which are basically termed um, LGBT ideology. So uh, even Polish president during the um, presidential, presidential um, electoral campaign last year um, have, said, have said that, has said that um, these are not people, this, this is ideology. So basically what we could see is, um, for example, a campaign to um, convince local municipalities, local administration to adopt um, so-called uh, LGBT free zone declarations, uh, which are often termed in terms of um, so-called family charters, also uh, drafted and promoted by other US Institute. And as of now, almost one third of the country um, are those LGBTQ free zones. And also we had, as I already said, protests, first the, the ruling of the Constitutional Tribunal, and then the protests, um, mass protests, which took place in um, over 600 Polish cities and, um, and villages, which gathered around 400,000 protesters, mo mostly young people, who are not only protesting the government, but also the church as the institution which was uh, behind those um, those um, decisions. So what it is, what do we see here, right? Are those campaigns simply um, the effect of the deep conservative uh, tendencies within Polish uh, political elite or Polish, um, Polish society in general, or uh, is it something larger at stake? And in my case, in my view, I think that we definitely see uh, should analyze those uh, those uh, tendencies, those trends, those campaigns, as a part of a broader movement, the anti-gender movement. Um, so the anti-gender movement um, is in fact uh, a new wave of opposition to both gender theory, sexual and reproductive rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, sex education, um, and also knowledge production within the field of gender studies and critical studies on race and sexuality. And it is partly a continuation of the cultural wars of the 80s and 90s, which originated in the United States. And you can see, you could see how certain ideas or concepts travel. And you can also see how, for example, American organizations are still active 
in the European context. But um, also it is a part of a broader cultural conflict over modernity, which is connected to the fact that uh, as Inglehart and Norris have shown, um, have shown um, there is a tendency to um, make um, cultural issues, the main political cleavage in today's democracies. Um, thirdly, um, this um, movement and this ideology can be seen as a conservative opposition to neoliberalism. Um, of course, those movements uh, do not, or do, these activists uh, do not use the notion of neoliberalism. What the progressives or the left would call uh, neoliberalism, they would call rampant individualism or alienation of today's, um, today's world or exploitation or the means of community. Uh, what the left would call a crisis of care, they would refer to as culture of death, right? What, um, what um, um, the progressive forces would define as reproductive uh, strike, the, um, the ultra-conservative uh, actors would call um, uh, abortion as Holocaust, for example. But clearly what they address often is the sense of uh, alienation and is also this cultural uh, framework of neoliberalism, which focuses on issues such as effectiveness, uh, self-reliance and, um, and um, productiveness as the main uh, elements of the definition of uh, a person. Um, and finally, the new global moral geography is at play, both in terms of actors and coalitions, which we can see now, for example, between um, some groups which originated in the United States and some Russian um, actors uh, and uh, organizations. But also this is, there is this new imaginary that now the East, which is positioned as the repository of traditional morality, is going to save the West save the West from itself, more or less, uh, save the West from the remnants of the sexual revolution, uh, save the West from the outrageous um, politics of, of the left. Um, so as you can see, those, uh, this trend has many facets. And uh, if we look at who is behind the, uh, these uh, campaigns, um, we can see of course, the, the usual suspects, religious fundamentalists, be it Catholic, uh, Protestant, Evangelical, Orthodox. But also um, we can think about these organizations and actors in terms of global liberal civil society. So there is a growing uh, recognition among scholars that civil society is not necessarily progressive or liberal, but it is diversified as politics usually is. And that we need to understand also and see and analyze the conservative or illiberal part um, uh, of civil society. Um, but also we can see um, organizations which even though they have connections to religious fundamentalist groups, they present themselves as secular organizations, such as in Poland or the Juris Institute, uh, Manif pour Tout uh, in France or Demo für Alle in Germany, uh, Vigilare, which is the daughter organization of Ordo Juris in, uh, established in uh, Croatia. Um, here there is this tendency to present themselves either as grassroots organizations or as sort of professional advocacy and lobby group, such as Ordo Juris Institute. But behind that, if we take another step um, back, we can see 
transnational organizations and networks such as World Congress of Families, um, an American organization established in uh, 1997, um, which has many ties to, to Russian uh, uh, groups and also organizations in different countries in Europe. Uh, we can see uh, lobby organizations which gather uh, many politicians from Europe and Latin America, political network for values, which presents itself as a transatlantic actor. Uh, traditional family and, family and property, Brazilian-based sect actually, and they have uh, they have gone into trouble for that in many countries. But they are still uh, it, it has been established in uh, six in the, already in the sixties, but it, now it it has sort of moved its operations into um, into the European context. And also there are fairly new organizations such as the online platform Citizen Go, which started in around less than 10 years ago, actually, and now they uh, boast to have over 10 million subscribers, so-called, you know, online activists who support their petition drives and support them with money. Um, and of course, um, the question is, well, uh, why should we talk about this phenomenon um, in relation to right-wing populism? Uh, well, as you can see on this picture, this is a picture taken in uh, Verona in 2019, where World Congress um, of Families organized its um, next Congress, and they usually organize it in cooperation with um, local and national um, um, authorities, uh, power holders. And you can see here uh, Brian Brown, in the middle uh, with um, um, Matteo Salvini and with um, um, Senator Pilon and of course other representatives of uh, non-governmental um, Italian organizations. And this picture is in a, way, in a way emblematic to the ways in which the anti-gender organizations function today. They function in a close cooperation with um, political actors and they seek this kind of collaboration and alliances wherever um, they are available. Um, therefore, we should actually ask the question, okay, but what are those alliances built on? Well, we can say people like Kaczynski are conservative or ultra conservative actually. And we will be right. But at the same time, if we think about um, Kaczynski's rule in 2005, 2007, he wasn't so keen on issue connected to gender. Uh, the same uh, way that Salvini wasn't always this, you know, um, um, rosary kissing um, defender of the family. So there is something going on, some kind of change if we look at the temporal dimension. Um, but when we look at um, um, available existing um, literature or conceptualizations of the relation between uh, populism and gender, we can see quite complex picture. On the one hand, um, uh, scholars such as Ruth Vodak, for example, suggest that right-wing populism uh, draws ideologically from gendered nationalism and therefore this gendered um, um, vision of society happens to be there. Um, um, and um, uh, other scholars such as Muda, um, Kasmuda and uh, Ravia Kaltwasser, uh, who has studied uh, four different cases of right-wing governments in Europe and beyond Europe, uh, they also look at right-wing populist and populist actors and left uh, populism. 
um, concluded that conceptually populism has no specific relationship to gender. Gender differences are considered secondary, if not irrelevant, to populist politics. Well, this uh, study has been published in 2015, and it seems that a quite a, a quite a lot of things has happened during um, during uh, this uh, last uh, six years, and this has definitely changed. Um, another issue, another view on that is um, um, presented by uh, scholars who work on voting behaviors and show that there is a gender gap in voting for right-wing populist parties. Therefore, uh, because mostly men are uh, voting uh, for right-wing populist parties, usually 60 to, to um, 40, 70 to 30, um, th this is the, the sort of vehicle or the reason for this gendered, um, uh, gendered um, um, character of populist. But actually, those studies usually looked at extreme populist uh, parties, not parties such as uh, law and justice, which actually have um, um, among its voters 50% of women. So there are also other studies which show that this, this proportion is uh, lower today than it was um, um, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, also, there are scholars who show that the opposition both to gender and populism has been fueled by neoliberalism, by precarization, by a sense of economic, um, uh, growing economic disparities, inequalities, and so on. And while I believe that this view is um, founded on, on sound science, but at the same time, I think that this um, economistic view is a little bit uh, too narrow, that we really have to include both um, economic and cultural trends and also see the role of emotions uh, in this process and also see uh, the type of uh, trade-offs that are involved in, in this cooperation. Uh, and finally, um, uh, there are scholars who also show that uh, populists and especially extreme right um, actors use gender as a way to sanitize extreme right-wing discourse. Uh, that this is a way to sort of normalize um, racism, for example. And again, um, this seems to be very um, interesting and, uh, and um, well-thought pro proposition, but at the same time, it seems that there is more to that than just um, a way to sort of cover up the most problematic elements of right-wing discourse. So um, together with Agnieszka Graf, we propose to think about uh, this relation between right-wing populism and anti-genderism in terms of opportunistic synergy, um, which um, is connected, of course, to the definition of right-wing populism that we adopt, uh, because we follow this ideational uh, uh, concept of uh, populism proposed by Mude, among others, um, who focuses on um, on um, right-wing populism, populism in general, general as um, thin ideology, which sort of needs to thicken by adopting, absorbing other um, more uh, more developed ideologies, and which is very much focused on the division between us and them, the elite and the people. Um, and of course, the what this discourse uh, fetishizes is the um, um, will of the people, right? So in that sense, uh, by absorbing anti-gender discourse, 
populism thickens, both symbolically and ideologically. Um, and uh, it really uh, thickens the definition of the elites and the people. Um, it, may, it really allows to shape or give shape to um, the danger that we have to that we have to struggle with, uh, picturing the enemy, um, the the feminist, the gender, the genderist, the LGBT ideologue as the member of elites who is plotting together with global financial elites such as Soros or uh, um, or uh, Bill Gates to actually colonize the people who are always um, gender conservative, locally rooted, um, willing to actually stay truth to their um, faith and to their tradition. And in that sense, this allows to really moralize this um, division. So it's not only about uh, elites who have more power than the people, but it's about um, um, it really allows to build a Manichaean vision of political divide in which the elites are cunning, dangerous. They are out there to grasp your, to, to, to snatch your children, to make them into homosexuals and to uh, teach them masturbation. Um, we have to defend ourselves, right? If you create the vision of elites as uh, powerful, as uh, evil, as corrupt um, and hidden, then, of course, uh, every act of even violence becomes self-defense. And, of course, this brings um, in an important element of populist politics, which is affects, right? Fear, uh, a sense of danger, sense of doom, but also anger, shame, and pride um, in uh, the fact that we can defend ourselves, sovereignty of our people and our country. And finally, um, there is this very interesting match, which is often overlooked in this uh, in debates on on right wing populism and, and uh, anti gender movement, uh, is the focus is the is the match between uh, the um, ideological sort of focus on traditional families, and welfare chauvinist pro family policies, which are introduced in countries such as Poland uh, and um, and. Um, uh, Hungary, for example. And I guess this is the, the main difference between the US and the European context, because in the US, the question of um, welfare family, welfare policies is always um, a problem. Um, and even the, the populist uh, leaders who might want to um, introduce certain provisions for the people, like Donald Trump, would rather go into or propose protectionist trade policies, for example, rather than talk about um, introducing um, um, universal mother's care, right? Whereas in the Polish context and in um, um, in Hungary, but also in many other countries, in Sweden, for example, the uh, Sweden Democrats present themselves as the protectors of the welfare state in its chauvinist version, welfare chauvinist version, in the sense that this should be something that we have for ourselves, but not uh, we should not share it with outsiders, with Roma people in Hungary, for example, or with uh, immigrants um, in, in other countries. Um, so um, at the same time, we can see that the main vehicle of this opportunistic synergy is the process of elite change. The ultra-conservative actors, um, such as the representative or the Euros Institute or 
uh, other um, organizations gain legitimacy and voice in public sphere. They uh, gain enormous uh, access to enormous resources, monetary and otherwise. Uh, they have access to political power. Uh, for example, the representatives of, of, of the Uris um, um, ended up in constitutional tribunal in certain um, uh, EU institutions as representatives of the, of, of the Polish state or Polish uh, civil society organizations. And of course, they, uh, they gain secular credibility, right? They become part of, of the new political uh, elite. Um, so to conclude, and this is this is my last uh, point, this opportunistic synergy is a dynamic that is both ideological discursive and strategic organizational. So it's neither a pure um, uh, pure ideological coherence nor just a strategy to gain uh, resources. And it has been enabled, and I think that this is also important, uh, by certain processes which took place before, these coalitions came into uh, into being. So uh, one of uh, one important element is the secularization of the anti-gender discourse during the last two, two decades, at, at least, and that was also um, discussed in the case of United States or Canada. The discourse of, for example, anti of uh, anti-choice groups has become more and more secularized. So we, they don't talk about the health fires, but they talk about, for example, women's rights uh, and the rights of um, um, uh, aborted female um, fetuses. Um, second element is that uh, the fact that ultra-conservative critiques of gender are framed in populist terms. So there is a very clear division between us and them, the elites, and the uh, and the, the the people who are colonized by 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 those liberal elites, and this this is very flexible um, uh, frame which is used differently in different contexts. Um, uh, third element is um, the, the sort of current moment in which we are, um, where we experience uh, a crisis of the neoliberal project, but a crisis that, that doesn't really present itself in the form of new opportunities. So in that sense, um, opposition to gender has been successfully um, presented as opposition to neoliberal sociocultural formation, as an alternative to individualism, to alienation, to crisis of community, crisis of care, and so on. So in that sense, it's a, it's a promise that, you know, once we come back to traditional gender roles, when, once we get rid of uh, abortion, sex education, and so on, we will be able to rebuild <laughs> the sense of stability, ontological stability even. And finally, um, uh, we, we have to observe, we have to notice the remarkable, remarkable flexibility of this anti-colonial frame that has been used uh, effectively by uh, the anti-gender movement. And this East-West division is important here, because um, when we look at the narratives uh, presented by intellectuals of the anti-gender movement, such as Gabriel Kubi, for example, German sociologist, uh, whose works uh, has been have been uh, uh, translated into several languages, she's extremely popular in Poland, for example. You can see how um, how she. Uh, um, uses this anti-colonial frame to accuse liberal elites and feminists of uh, colonization and of extermination of, for example, um, black people in, in Africa or, uh, or in other contexts. But at the same time, uh, it can be used in uh, directly 
racist and homophobic uh, version, um, for example, in Polish politics today. Um, so this flexibility allows this discourses to travel and be effective in different contexts. Thank you very much. So this is all, and I hope we'll have um, a great discussion. Thank you very much for that multifaceted analysis, which I would have to say is succinct on the one hand, but also very sobering, very troubling when you start thinking about it. I had this image of an octopus with these eight tentacles reaching out and sort of grabbing in whatever vulnerable groups it might happen to see somewhere on the horizon. I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions, but having listened very intently to this, um, there are two questions that uh, I'll just throw out there to start the discussion. The first has to do with the question of who's behind it. And, and I concur, this is, involves internal groups as well as external groups. I don't know if you're familiar with a FAM committee a couple of weeks ago had done a presentation on foreign interference, particularly in relation to abortion reproductive rights. And, and they used one statistic that was just mind boggling between 2009 and 2018, over $702 million has been poured in to Europe from these anti-gender groups. And of course, it's the United States, Russia, and then to a lesser extent, uh, those groups within European countries themselves. When you're looking at the Polish case, are these external influences palpable? Uh, are they being channeled mostly through social media? Or are the, the Americans tend to use the courts, you know, to try to win those battles? So where do you feel these kinds of foreign interference efforts in Poland? The second question I would raise has to do with women. We know from all of these populist countries that men are disproportionately inclined to vote for these parties. But you said women do vote for law and justice. And yet when we see the demonstrations, we see a lot of young women there. So have, have these populists driven an effective wedge between older women and younger women? Uh, you know, where, what, are these, what are these women voting for aside from policies that are gonna hurt their own daughters? So I'm sure those are very heavy questions and you have two and a half seconds to answer each of them and then we'll move on to the other questions but I'd be grateful for whatever feedback you can provide. Thank you very much. Yes, these are big questions, but uh, just to sort of cut the long story short, when, it, when we talk about who is behind it, uh, I would say that we could identify at least um, three types of sources of support, know-how, organizational support, um, money, and so on. So. Uh, on the one hand, we have those organizations which have their origins in culture wars in the United States in the 80s and early 90s, uh, such as the World Congress of Families, for example, which has been established in 1997, as far as I remember. Uh, and from the very beginning, it was uh, oriented towards cooperation with um, uh, Russian organizations and their Russian counterparts. Um, other organizations, and, and these, these are usually um, um, organizations that you've mentioned, for example, which um, 
channel money into, for example, European Union. Uh, and these are often um, um, organizations which are directly connected to fundamental fundamentalist religious groups, such as um, um, evangelical churches. Um, another group that should be uh, distinguished here is uh, our organizations which are quite new, such as Citizen Go, for, for example, which has been established in uh, Spain in 2013, and it's quite modern in, in its operational model. So it's, um, it's an online platform, it gathers people, uh, addresses people for petition drives, mobilizes people, uh, it has quite new model of uh, gaining small donations from people. So um, the question is, of course, to what extent they uh, sort of do the money laundering for the for the movement, and to what extent they are really um, uh, capable of um, of gaining a lot of money in small donations. Um, and of course, then the third element is the are, are the political um, um, political actors. Right, such as, for example, Salvini, such as um, in Poland, Kaczynski, such as Trump, who see uh, cooperation with those groups as an opportunity. And at the same time, they open up political opportunity structure for those groups to enter sort of corridors of power, right, to have access to, to money and so on. Uh, and it, but what is really interesting is also to see how this uh, structure is changing, for example, uh, last year, there has been a, a court case um, between the Polish organization, which established Ordo Juris Institute, and their mother organization, uh, which is the French uh, French chapter of uh, TFP uh, tradition, um, which is the, the, the Brazilian um, sect from the 60s, tradition, um, ownership, I think, and family. And it turned out that during the last couple of years, it was the Polish it, because it functions as a franchise, basically. The, the Polish organization has transferred around 8 million euro to the French headquarters. So it seems like, you know, um, countries such as Poland become the new hub for this kind of operations. And organizations such as Ordeus, for example, become the new uh, uh, European players. So this, this field is, is changing, actually. But generally, we have the, the connection between the religious fundamentalists, uh, of course, with Vatican always um, sort of in the perspective, um, uh, together with uh, more secular um, ultra-conservative groups and right-wing politicians. And as to the second question about the women, um, there are, um, first of all, uh, you've mentioned the, the the studies about you know the preference, uh, men's preference for um, for uh, right wing parties or the overrepresentation of men uh, in the electorate of uh, of such parties. But this is true mostly for extreme populist parties, right? So th this th this doesn't really work for those mainstream. Uh, parties such as law and justice, for example, 51% of the law and justice electorate are women. And there are different factors behind this, uh, this kind of decision. Of course, there is a tendency for older and less educated, more religious women to support uh, law and justice party, whereas young, more, uh, better educated women uh, tend to support leftist parties, right? We, we had just new uh, uh, opinion poll, which shows that among this, uh, this uh, uh, group, 
this this demographic um, the left party have uh, left parties actually have the biggest support uh, but there are three elements to this uh, type of support from women one is i would say ideological and uh, i think that we should really take into consideration real ideological or um, worldview differences between different groups of women and for some women um, the investment in religion and Catholicism, even if it means that they have to adopt a very gender conservative view on women and men, is something that they strongly strongly believe in. Another issue are family policies. Uh, And uh, also uh, law and justice has been very effective in in introducing other quite important um, reforms, such as, for example, um, making the minimal pay higher, right? you have the battle now in, in the US, right? So, uh, so in that sense, it's a real economic, um, economic um, interest at stake. Um, and the third element I would say is this uh, type of recognition that they give to family policy, motherhood as a valid choice or a valid role for women. And I think that for many women who are extremely tired of trying to juggle both uh, their private roles and and, uh, their jobs. This type of message is quite convincing, it's quite um, attractive. Thank you. Although it's still very contradictory, but that's my personal sense of where are these younger women? Uh, There was one of the earlier questions focused a little bit more on the role of the Catholic Church. And I do remember that the, having been raised Catholic myself a long time ago, the Catholic Church has obviously been through a lot of ups and downs over since the 1990s. I mean, the revelations that even Catholic bishops in Poland had been working with the secret police, and then came the pedophile scandal. And now I've heard recently the Catholic Church is even mobilizing against vaccinations, COVID vaccinations, because some of this derives from stem cell lines from two abortions back in the 1960s. So the question that was posed has to deal with, you know, you use the term secularization a lot. Is there, is Poland really becoming a secular society? And so that's fueling the church backlash, or is it because the church itself has to look for new sources of legitimacy, given the kinds of scandals it's pulled itself through? Why don't you try that? Yes, thank you for this question. And it's a really complex issue because as usual, the, the answer would be yes and no. It is, if you look at the Pew Research uh, opinion poll uh, from last year, I think, or 2019, uh, Poland is the fastest secularizing country in all the countries that, that were under study. But that means that, not, it doesn't mean that, you know, the majority of Poles uh, do not believe in God, but it means that, uh, the younger generation, that there is a biggest gap between in religiosity between the young, younger generation and the older generation. But um, what is really true uh, um, when it comes to the what is really observable when it comes to the the role of the Catholic Church uh, is that first of all uh, we see the dismantling or um, or bankruptcy of the deal between uh, the church and the um, political elites, not only right-wing elites, I would say, liberal elites as well, the deal which was made already in the early 90s, that, you know, there will be certain concessions 
towards the church in terms of, you know, its financial position, in terms of, you know, having religion in public schools, having ban on abortion and so on, uh, because it was believed that the church as a social and cultural um, institution is a, an important um, stabilizer of the Polish uh, political and social life. Right. So the idea was that because of Poland is undergoing this great transformation, we need this sense of stability and church is an institution that will give it give it to us. And I think that th this is crumbling and this is crumbling for many reasons. One of the reasons is uh, the, the inability of the Polish Catholic uh, Church to to deal with the with those with these pedophile scandals, because, you know, the, the fact that these scandals exist is one thing, but the, the, the ways in which it, they try to not to deal with them is, is quite another. Uh, another issue is the, the financial uh, privileges that uh, the Catholic Church has. Um, and uh, it's very um, visible investment in uh, politics. So in that sense, uh, those three tendencies, these three decisions actually that the uh, Catholic clergy or hierarchy made in Poland uh, bring uh, fruits, bring effects. And these are, these are really, um, they should be troubling for the church because uh, they see the number of people who go to church dropping. They see the number of people who take communion dropping. Uh, actually only 36% of Poles go to church regularly which is also quite telling in terms of you know, how strong um, uh, being, you know, the fact that you are baptized translates into practices. Uh, but I think that what those protests really shown, uh, have shown is the fact that uh, the church loses its authority in the sort of classical Weberian sense, right? So Max Weber said that, you know, people have to willingly support the type of power uh, that uh, an institution such as such as religious institution institution have, and what we see on the streets uh, is the sort of toppling of this type of of, of authority. Um, the fact that those protests took place in front of the churches, in churches, that there were a lot of you know strong words against the clergy and the church. All those, each and every element might be not decisive, but if you look at them in in their um, in their um, sort of mass, you can see that it's changing. But I think that as we as we have seen in the in the case of Ireland, uh, political change is needed for this, you know, emerging social mm -hmm. and cultural change to take real effect. Good. Another question focuses, kind of zooms back in on the East-West dimension, and I'm sure you get tired of answering this kind of a question, but there are a lot of us who would argue that Poland benefited significantly from its membership in the EU, as did all the other CEE countries. And then you come across this phrase, Ebola from Brussels, which is pretty harsh language, you know, so this attempt to kind of play off the East and the West in moral terms, is this really reflective of Polish attitudes towards European Union membership? I mean, accepting funds from Russians to support this kind of right-wing populist agenda on the one hand, but hoping that NATO will be there to protect them against the Russians and what's happening in Ukraine on the other. I mean, is how, how do you see this East-West thing 
working out beyond its manipulative power. And we seem to be running into technical issues. So perhaps the noble thing here to do is to thank our speaker for a very, very excellent and interesting and informative talk. Um, and um, thank also Joyce uh, who, for, for bringing her expertise and taking it to a new country, which is not um, one of her normal, uh, not her normal beat. Uh, more of a German specialist, in my understanding. Um, and um, to thank everybody for attending today and for sending in your very interesting questions. Warm round of applause to our speaker um, and um, to, to Joyce and to really thank Joyce. And Elisabetta has joined us for the second time um, now to make this happen. So we really, really appreciate um, her, um, her, her making the effort to, to, have, to make it happen. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much, Phil. Do, do you hear me now? Yes. It, it's working now. Okay, so just let me answer this last question. Oh, sure, okay. okay. Like two minutes. <laughs> I just sure. you know, don't want to leave people hanging. Um, and I think it's, it's quite fun in a way because it's uh, on the one hand, you can see that Poles are the biggest enthusiast of European Union in Europe. There was like 95% of Poles who support Polish uh, accession in the, to the European Union. But at the same time, you have this strange combination of fear of being sidelined, um, a sense of being always, you know, the one who has to catch up to the developed West. And of course, if you, if you see, for example, if you look at the literature on civil society or on women's movements or on gender equality policies, you can see that quite a lot of those um, changes of the changes that have been uh, introduced in the 90s were introduced from the top down. So they were not really um, introduced uh, at the grassroots level. And they often felt as something that came from the outside, right? That, that was sort of proposed as the best solution rather than negotiated with, with Poles themselves. And I think that the right-wing uh, politicians are very skillful in using this sense of pride and shame, in a sense, uh, together. Uh, but what is really important here is that if you look at the narratives of the of the uh, anti-gender movement, what they are saying is that actually now we from the east will save you from the west because you've lost your way because of the sexual revolution, because mm -hmm. of the because of the feminism, you know, gay rights and so on, and you are in danger. So you need to be saved and you will be happy mm -hmm. once you will be saved, right? So this is a quite, so this is a, a different type of uh, narrative than just saying that, you know, we have to protect ourselves from the West. It is rather, we will something, we have something that we will, we can give to the West and it will save its, its you know, true soul. So beware of that. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for joining us.